Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And it's hard to look past the rape allegations dominating discussions in Canberra politics at the moment and the safety of women operating in what many experience to be a toxic culture. Yet when you do, there are some enormously important issues at play. In the past week, the federal coalition has lost its working majority in the House of Representatives. It was announced JobSeeker will be raised by just over $3.50 a day and the Royal Commission into Aged Care is expected to show the crisis in aged care is deep and depressing, as many fear. Emma Dawson is Exec Director of Per Capita Think Tank. And Emma, I wish there was kind of more uplifting issues to discuss with you this morning. But um, I guess it's just really important that we understand from many different points of view what decisions have been taken in our name. And I guess, I mean, can we start first with the government losing its working majority? Practically, mm. what does that now mean um, for the government's legislative agenda? Practically, it doesn't mean that much. So they've lost their working majority because they now have 75 seats um, in a 150-seat lower house, 151 seats, but one of their... uh, They actually have 76, but one of their seats is the Speaker, of course, Tony Smith. So 75 government MPs on the floor and Labor and the crossbench makes up another 75. So if uh, the government was to introduce a piece of legislation um, that all of the crossbench voted with uh, Labor to oppose, uh, they would then, um, you know, be in some some trouble because they would have to call on the Speaker to break that deadlock and the Speaker, by convention, uh, only votes for the status quo. But in, in real practical terms, um, it's not going to have a huge impact. They've, Craig Kelly will still vote with the government on issues of money and supply, and he's indicated that he'll, he'll vote with the government on any policy they took to the last election as well. So uh, it may, you know, it, there, there may be um, a few incidences where uh, we see things get a little bit hairy for the government, but it's not in the position it was in shortly before the election when it was possible to actually lose a vote, as it did with, for example, the Medivac uh, legislation uh, that, that was passed by the crossbench. Mm. And, I mean, we've spoken to you many times on, on this show about the campaign to raise the rate for what's you know, mm. now called JobSeeker, the unemployment benefit. There's been a lot of people um, waiting for the government to make an announcement about a permanent increase. We've now got that, um, $25 a week, an extra roughly yes. $350 a day. What are your thoughts on that announcement? $3.47 a day. Um, so it's not even a cup of coffee. Uh, it's, a, it's an insult. It's a slap in the face to people that have been campaigning long and hard for a meaningful rise to this rate. Uh, the government's spin doctors were out in full force. I'm not, I'm not holding back on this one, guys. It was appalling. Um, they were out in full force saying, oh, it's the largest rise to the unemployment rate since 1986. Um, it that, that means nothing when the rate's gone up from $40 a day to $43 a day uh, for people. And we now have 1.2 million people relying on that uh, payment at the moment, 1.2 people on JobSeeker, 1.2 million people on JobSeeker. And over seven, about half of them, more than half of them, have some real barrier to work, whether that's a disability or a long-term chronic illness or caring responsibilities. Um, a lot of single mothers over, over the age of 
five on this payment now, uh, many of whom, them and people with disabilities, used to be on higher rates of pay uh, on different payments. So it's really a very poor outcome. Um, I noted, note that last week in the Senate, uh, the Greens and Labor voted for a motion that passed the Senate to say that no one, that, that job seekers should be raised to, to ensure no one's living in poverty. That would require the lowest, uh, you know, possible rate of increase to bring it to, to bring the payment to the poverty line would be $250 a fortnight, not $50 a fortnight. And that's what per capita has been calling for for some time. Um, some people would go further. The Australian Unemployed Workers' Union is calling for $80 a day, which is, you know, right back to where it was uh, with the full supplement last year. Um, I think, you know, while no one uh, who oppo opposes this small increase, has, many people haven't agreed on what the rate should be, but we've all agreed that $50 a fortnight is just really a, a very bad outcome. And in many ways, that will pass. Labor has been clear they'll pass that because some increase is better than nothing. But I hope, uh, you know, and the government may then think, well, that's it, that's off the table, we've done it, but we're not going to stop making noise on this. Um, no one who's been agitating for an increase uh, is going to be satisfied with this. It does nothing to materially improve the living conditions of those many people, many of whom are on the rate for, for much longer than they should be. And at the same time as well, the government hasn't announced anything meaningful in terms of creating new jobs and really making a pathway for people to get off that payment and into work. So, no, it's very, very disappointing. So with regards to the payment and, I mean, I guess with the, regards to the politics, uh, Emma, why is it with such, you know, with, with a, a, a funds per day for a person who is, is receiving this payment, people see that, you know, it's well below the poverty line and yet the government feels confident in, in setting at that point. What does it say about the electorate and attitudes yeah. towards people that receive these particular, um, this particular payment? Um, I think it says nothing good about us, actually. And I think it says it shows that, you know, decades of rhetoric of, of calling people doll bludgers and job snobs um, has really paid off with a huge chunk of the electorate. I've been surprised. I've done a, a bit of radio on this over the last week. It's great to be talking to you guys. Um, but... Uh, that you know that I've had callers call in and say, "Oh, people don't deserve an increase. They need to get off their bums and get a job." Um, there are currently, on average, around Australia, more than eight people for every job vacancy, and in some parts of Australia, Tasmania, that's seventeen people competing for every job. South Australia, it's twelve people, um, and in regional areas, that rate goes up again. Um, so. I think the fact that the government recognised that they could get this was the lowest rate they could get away with, um, but that it would be accepted by a big chunk of the electorate, really shows that um, people who are not in work have been demonised now for decades. There is a real lack of understanding that um, you know this typical this idea, the stereotype of, a, of someone on job seekers or, or new starters, it used to be as being a bloke in his you know mid twenties who doesn't want to work, is just not borne out by the facts at all. You know, the, over well over a third of people that are on this rate are single parents. Um, 
but the biggest and fastest growing group of people on JobSeeker are people over 45. So the stereotype that it's young single people who are job snobs is just not true. Um, even when young people are on this rate, they're desperate to find work. The number of people who are actively who really don't want to work is minuscule. It's tiny. Um, nobody chooses to live on $40 a day. The idea that you're having fun going to the beach or as someone on another radio show talkback caller said to me last week, oh, they're having fun at the beach. Sounds like you've been having a lot of fun there, Emma. No, you're not having a lot of fun on $40 a day, whatever you're doing. um, It's disappointing. And and, and speaking of that that term job snobs, I mean, as part of this Mm. package, we've heard about a a phone line so employers can effectively dob in someone they deem to be turning down suitable work. I mean, how does that actually how would that actually work and and what's the rationale before that i mean given that um you know there are there's so much competition out there for the number of positions that are available mm. why why have you know a, a dobbin sort of hotline for, for someone who's turning down work It is the most on-brand offensive thing, I think, that this government's yet come up with, and that's saying something, this Dobbin a job snob line. Um, It's been condemned even by employer groups. You know, the Council of Small Business Organisations said this is horrible and it won't work. Um, The only possible rationale behind it is to make life even harder for people on JobSeeker. It's signalling to certain parts of the electorate that we're going to treat these people even worse. You know, those people... People. They're not like us, and any one of us, as last year showed, could be uh, could be out of a job tomorrow. It's you know this false sense that there's a an us and them. It's really um, interesting, isn't it, Emma? That that we have yeah. had the experience of the pandemic where things mm. just turned on their heads for many sectors of the economy, and and yet we can still have the same conversation around those yep. receiving um, unemployment payments. But I, I wonder, with regards to um, you know wages, I mean, when mm. you've got high unemployment. Yeah. Or people, you know, so many people vying for um, the the roles that are being advertised, it does lead to wage stagnation, and we're actually starting to see that. I mean, there's other th- things that lead to yeah. wage stagnation as well, but um, we are starting oh, to that, see that yeah. as well. So, it's I mean, that's an interesting dynamic. It's part and parcel of this of the government's approach to wages. This, I think, Je- Greg Jericho pointed this out in the Guardian on the weekend. The job in a job seeker hotline is just another way of keeping wages low because it. it essentially pushes people, it threatens people um, to take a job that is perhaps low in pay and low in conditions because if they don't, they can get dobbed in and lose their benefits. So it gives it even further skews that power imbalance towards the employer and away from workers. But it's absolutely of a piece with a whole series of policies that this government has implemented over decades. It's time in power and right back to the Howard government to push wages down and push profits up. So why Um, then is it that we're not hearing then a a rate set um, by the ALP um, in in opposition? I mean, uh, there's been a reluctance and I'm I'm wondering if it's to remain a small target we know that that works for oppositions or why do you think that we're not hearing an actual rate being put forth um, as an alternative? I think for a long time the ALP was 
rightly um, not letting the government off the hook by saying, well, you know, you're in power, um, you need to, to make a decision on this. But I do think the time is passed now for the ALP to come out and say, look, we think it should be at least X. Now, they did, as I said, vote in the Senate last week uh, to support a Greens motion that the rate should be set at at least the poverty line. That would indicate that um, if, they, if they abide by that and they voted for it in the Senate last week, that they should be supporting a rate increase of at least 200 $50 a fortnight, and I think it's time for them to say so. Um, that's, you know, it's still below what some groups are calling for. The uh, ACOS is calling for $65 a day. AUW is caling for $80 a day. Uh, $250 a fortnight's just, it's about $58 a day. Um, and it's in line with the poverty line as set by the ANU um, social policy, uh, economic policy team there. That And we've done, you know, a lot of research into this. We think that's an appropriate rate for the moment, but but only if it's coupled with genuine full employment policies and only if you can say, well, then, if it's too, if it's going to be, you know, $816 a fortnight, which is the poverty line, it must be a temporary payment. It, you can't expect people to live on that for two years, five years, ten years. It can only be at that even at that poverty line rate, if people are on it for a few weeks while they're looking for work. And anyone who has a barrier to work that means that they're going to be on the payment for a long time, whether that's a disability, whether that's being a parent of a young child, whether that's a chronic illness, they should be on a different, higher rate of payment that recognises that it's not a temporary situation for them. Anything less than that is not only morally indefensible, but it's economically stupid because mm -hmm. we need people to have enough money to participate meaningfully, not just in society, but in the economy. Um, and this, you know, broader approach of pushing the living standards and wages and incomes of people who are unwaged or low-waged workers or ward-wage workers down and the profits of wealthy people up, with Jerry Harvey keeping $22 million of taxpayer money or making a killing through the pandemic, for example, is just... It just can't go on any longer. It's creating real inequality and division in our society, and it seems to be the deliberate policy approach of the government, of one side of politics, for decades. And actually, we're, I'm working on a paper looking at all of this right now, which we'll have out very soon. Well, we'll look forward to reading it. And um, I should remind listeners, Emma Dawson is our guest executive director at Per Capita. We're talking about um, a bunch of issues um, in politics and, and policy at the moment. Just in the, the few minutes we have left, Emma, I mean, over the past number of weeks, um, the kind of culture of, of work inside um, Parliament House and, and, you know, state and federal politics, to be fair, has been really in the spotlight with allegations of rape and, and sexual assault um, put forward by, by a number of women. Um, you, form, in a former life, were a staffer in federal politics. I wonder what your response is to this and, and whether you were, you know, surprised by any yeah. of this type of um, allegations coming out of those working, um, you know, right at the coalface. Yeah. Um, so I'll preface it by saying my my time in working as a staffer was one of the best jobs I've ever had. I was very lucky. I had a terrific boss um, and worked in an office that had fantastic gender politics and under Australia's first female Prime Minister for a big chunk of that time too, which made it, may have made a difference. Having said that, um, it is an incredibly blokey culture, politics. Um, there were very few women of my... I was in my 30s at the time. Very few women in their 30s can do that job because you've got to travel so much 
age. Um, and so there, there are a lot of younger women uh, and some older women and a lot of men. Um, the staff, the staff uh, uh, cohort is dominated by men and a lot of them are very entitled men on both sides. Um, I worked with some terrific ones. I was very lucky, as I said. Um, there, it, is, it is a very brutal 24-7 job. There is a kind of um, omerta that, that applies, if you like. There's a, you know, you're part of a family and you're very aware that any problems that come up if they get out publicly could damage the, uh, the chances of the party you're working for. Um, uh, while I was there, as I said, the culture was, was very different, I think, than it is now, perhaps because we had a female PM. Um, I have been shocked by the extent of some of the allegations that have come out lately. I certainly wasn't aware of that kind of, you know, actual sexual assault um, going on when I worked there. Uh, but you know, the the, the culture of um, the, the very male um, entitled privilege culture, that was certainly there. And these situations where um, that culture prevails, it makes it much easier for that culture to really go off the rails in the way we've seen in these allegations over recent weeks. They are, they are shocking and appalling allegations. Women should feel safe at work. And actually, uh, even when I was there, it... it, it you know, the place would have been better for more female advisers, for, for a stronger voice for women in policy making uh, on a number of fronts, even quite separately from the appalling criminal allegations that we've seen over the last few weeks. Yeah. So, yes. We do need more diversity in politics and uh, it's absolutely indefensible that this should happen in any workplace. And, and I mean, of course, it's important for each of those um, allegations to be investigated independently, but it feels like there mm. may be a bit of a reckoning happening with, um, you know, more accounts surfacing and, and I guess mm. people feeling like maybe the climate has changed a little bit and, and might feel more like they can speak up and, and be properly heard. Do you think there will be any changes coming out of this um, within those who kind of work in, in politics and, and particularly the way I suppose that staffers are, um, you know, come under the Fair Work Act and the way in which their sort of working roles are governed differently from many other Australians? Look, I think they'll have to be. Um, it, it's not a sustainable lifestyle for a normal person. You know, you, even though I loved the job, um, I was single with no dependents. Um, and if you're not, it's very difficult to do that work because, as I said, you're on 24-7. Um, the pressure is immense uh, and the travel is, you know, really uh, demanding. Um, and But that kind of, you know, you haven't got enough. If, if I had ever had a problem, um, which I didn't, Fortunately, I wouldn't have known where to go or that there was any mm. option um, to go anywhere. So to talk to anyone independently, and I think that absolutely has to change. But I think it's important to note here that <clears throat> the real problems are, are, are concentrated in one party. Um, the Greens, uh, Labor, independents, we're not hearing anything like the extent of these serious allegations coming from that side and that's because there are more women in those parties um, there are more women you know the, the Greens and Labor have 50% female MPs nearly so um, that makes a difference and a big part of the problem is that it is very difficult as a woman to uh, succeed and to get ahead in the Liberal Party and until a national party and until they accept that they're going to need positive affirmative action and a style system, that is not going to change. Emma, it's um, great having you on Triple R. Nice to speak to you again. And um, no doubt we'll catch you in the coming months as well. Thanks, yeah. thanks, thanks for guys. spending some time Cheers. with us. Emma Dawson, um, she's the Exec Director over at Per Capita. 
You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And you may or may not know, but um, this century, rates of crime have plummeted in Australia and in many countries like us around the world. And for example, uh, offences like break and enter, robbery and car theft have each dropped around 70% in a couple of decades. This prompted our next guest to ask, how did this happen? Why did the seemingly unstoppable tide of crime, which was around us in the 1980s and 90s, suddenly start to retreat? And where have all the criminals gone? Turns out no one really knows why this has happened, although there have been many theories put forward. And these theories of what Don Weatherburn um, has been tackling with his co-author in a book called The Vanishing Criminal, which tests over a dozen of the dominant ideas to why Australia's and other countries' drop in crime has come about. And it's really great to have Don with us by phone. And I guess it's worth saying, Don, I mean, look, crime is fascinating. It, it, it's in our newspapers. Um, we, we hear it reported all the time. We make TV shows about it. And what's drawn you, though, to the study of crime stats? Well, I ended up in crime statistics because when I finished my PhD, I didn't want to work in that area anymore. So it was more accident than design, although I must say I've always found, like everybody, I think I've found crime Interesting. I was drawn to the problem because when I started doing research on crime, it just went up and up every year. Never seemed to be any end to it. And then suddenly around Christmas 2000, it started coming down and nobody seemed to be paying too much attention to that. And over time, I got more and more interested in why it was coming down. And when you first noticed that the, the tide was turning back in sort of 2000 and, and the years immediately after that, Don, how did you react? I mean, was there a bit of questioning around, you know, whether the numbers were right? Well, I certainly had my doubts to begin with, as did a lot of other people. I mean, you know, you've got to remember we had rising crime in Australia pretty much from the mid-1970s right up to 2000. So when suddenly it starts turning, the first thing you question is the figures themselves. But the Australian Bureau of Statistics run us a survey of the general public across Australia, and pretty soon that confirmed the drop. And the good thing about that survey, of course, is it picks up crime that isn't reported to the police. So it gradually became clear that this was no statistical manipulation. This was a genuine reduction. And it wasn't just you that had a question mark. Um, you, were, you write in your book that the likes of Alan Jones and Miranda Devine were kind of, you know, really criticising the numbers themselves and I, I guess sort of ate humble pie later. I'm not sure that happened. but <laughs> um, that... <laughs> I don't recall seeing either of them uh, eat humble pie, but if Alan Jones ever did, I'd be more than happy to watch. But uh, no, they, they accused me or implied that I was manipulating the figures to make the government of the day look good. Mind you, when the Conservative government got elected, they stopped saying that, but just goes to show the way they operate. Um, But look, after about 
a year or so, it was so obvious that, you know, there was no real room for manoeuvre beyond that and there weren't anybody. I, I mean, occasionally you will get people say, you know, I was a victim of crime or my house was broken into or my car was stolen, so there can't be a drop in crime. But in fact, those events have become far less frequent over time. And they were very frequent in the 80s and 90s. I guess I was sort of a, a, a young adult in the early 90s and car theft was common, right, in, in Melbourne. And so, I mean, probably people I know didn't drive cars that had great security either. But I guess there's you know, that, that sense that it was common occurrence, property crimes and, and the like. Um, it actually bears out in the stats in, in those years. But, you know, once you saw the, the crimes um, crime rate dropping, was it clear why? Like why we saw a decline in, in um, certain kinds of crime? Well, because the reduction coincided with what's known as the heroin shortage, that's an event that occurred around Christmas 2000 when the price of heroin in Australia went up and the purity of heroin went down, um, and it coincided with that. My first reaction, and a lot of people's first reaction, was, well, people are leaving the heroin market, and if they're not using as much heroin as they did, they're probably not robbing or breaking into houses as much as they did the trouble with that theory is that about three years after the shortage, the heroin overdose rate, which is our principal marker of what's going on with heroin, levelled off and didn't go down any further, but crime kept on declining. So crime was declining from about 2003 right up to the present, and there'd been no change in the heroin market at all. So we started looking at other factors that might be working or coming into play. And it's not just sort of violent crime and, and property theft and, and burglaries that you look at. It's, there's kind of a broader view of, of crime as well. Do we see a kind of similar decline in different types of crime from the 2000s or is it a bit of a, a more sort of complicated picture when we take in things like, um, you know, fraud and, and some kinds of sexual assaults and, and that sort of thing? Well, it is a bit of a complicated picture. Unlike many other countries, Australia's crime rate uh, drop really depended upon the offence you were talking about. So homicide had been falling prior to 2000 um, and property crime, including robbery, dropped around 2000. Assault didn't come down until around 2008. Sexual assault has never come down. And fraud, which had been stable, is now rising rapidly. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I mean, having gone through this sort of um, this process of looking, you know, incredibly closely at these statistics and and challenging and, and testing, I suppose, some of the common theories around why the crime rate might have fallen. What are some of the most convincing reasons for for that picture that you just painted? Do you think? Well, I think it's a multiplicity of factors, as, as I suppose every researcher <laughs> says. But but uh, I mean, essentially, what happened was this: you had in the lead-up to 2000, a slow decline in the, in the proportion of young people in the population, and, and young people are responsible for most of the crime. So that was declining. Then the heroin shortage hit, and a lot of people who are committing crime to raise money to buy heroin left the market. Then after that, there were technological developments that made it harder to steal things. For example, uh, you could steal a, a mobile phone, but people could switch it off and make it impossible to use. You could steal goods, but... You could no longer sell them at pawnbrokers and second-hand dealers because the police were watching. Uh, you could steal a car, but, but that became more difficult when they introduced engine immobilizers and then even more difficult when they put microdots on the car parts so that you could trace the car parts from a stolen car. 
So as the number of criminals started dropping, the number of police was going up. So the ratio of police to crime had gone up. Basically, that meant you had more police chasing fewer offenders. So the clear-up rate went up. The risk of apprehension went up. So that acted as a deterrent. And basically, the story kept going like that. You had, for example, the development of uh, credit card uh, usage. So the the number of people carrying large wads of cash declined. Mm. So robbers want cash. They don't want credit cards. And so the rewards that came from robbery started to decline. So in a sense, it was an extraordinary combination of good luck. Uh, All these developments happening around the same time and over a 20-year period just basically reduced most of the crimes, uh, leaving only a couple of the ones, well, some of them quite serious, child sexual assault, for example, which has become a major problem on the internet. Yeah, and I I mean, when reading through, it did make me wonder, I mean, you also speak about the past couple of decades until the recession um, due to to COVID um, being a period of economic growth. And I wondered if that sort of environment in which Australia has been enjoying for for a couple of decades now appealed to our better, the better angels in us. I, I did wonder that. Well, I don't know about the better angels. I mean, crime, a lot of people think of criminals as being people with a permanent desire to commit offences. In fact, most offenders are creatures of opportunity. They walk past the car and see it's unlocked and can't resist stealing it, or they walk past the house and see that the door's wide open and duck in. So they'll go in and out of crime depending on the rewards associated with it and the availability of lawful or legitimate employment. So they're not all permanent criminal careers, although there are people, of course, who start young and and stay involved in crime until they're quite late, but they're a minority. Most of those who steal or rob are people who do it from about the age of 15 to about the age of 30 and then basically leave the criminal world behind them. We're speaking with Don Weatherburn, co-author of the book The Vanishing Criminal, uh, Causes of Decline in Australia's Crime Rate, and we're unpacking um, some of the major kind of takings from that book with Don today. And, I mean, it's interesting to read this book and see that, you know, um, for the vast majority of crimes, it has been declining quite you know, rapidly, really, since the year 2000. Yet from my kind of brief scan of some surveys that have been done about public perceptions of crime, it seems that in Australia and in, in places like the US, uh, the perception is that crime is increasing. And I mean, we've had, you know, uh, very uh, sort of fraught and, and, and um, a competitive election campaign uh, where law and order, order figures prominently as kind of a policy platform of particular parties. Why do we have this perception of crime increasing when actually the statistics tell a very different story? Well, I think the short answer to that is most people find statistics boring. Um, so they're far more interested in turning on the television set and seeing yet another murder or another break-in or another robbery. And bear in mind that this is a country now with 20 million people, so if you're in the news, there's never a shortage of crime stories to run. Even if crime is declining, we're never going to get to the point where there's none. So I think the news coverage of crime hasn't changed at all, and that's where most people get their information from. So I think the impression is basically because people, most people don't regard crime research as their hobby and and don't specialise in it. And I might pop up once a year and say, this is what's happening with crime, but that's just Don Weatherburn weighed against me as all the television channels showing night after night stories of 
of crime. So I, I think the media and politicians both have something to answer for when it comes to distorted public perceptions of crime. Do you think then um, that is why we still get things like mandatory sentencing, which um, we, when looking closely at the statistics actually don't um, don't act as a deterrent, actually punish, you know, particularly children or youth offenders um, disproportionately to the crime that they um, have been accused or, or convicted of? Well, I think that I think that's part of the reason, but it's always important to remember that the public wants two things out of uh, sentencing. They want, of course, something that will deter offenders, but they also want punishment. So, you know, much of the demand for tough penalties is a desire to punish offenders. And I suppose if you said to many people, well, look, you're punishing them, all right, but it's not going to have any effect on crime, they'd probably still uh, vote for tougher penalties. I think that's one element of it. The other element is that, um, rather like crime statistics, most people don't know too much about what works in reducing crime. So, for example, when the government embarks on tougher penalties, they all sit up and take notice. But if the government says, as many governments did, that we're going to make it harder to sell stolen goods, well, that's going to be on page 15. Yet that is the very thing that makes a difference. In fact, it brings home to me a situation in WA some years ago where the government introduced mandatory sentencing for car theft because they had a big car theft problem. Well, the mandatory sentencing had no effect, but when they introduced engine immobilisers, it had a dramatic effect. Well, nobody was too interested in the engine immobilisers. They were far more interested in the three strikes and your outlaws. Yeah, and, and I suppose some of those laws that are proposed speak very directly to a, a type of, um, you know, perhaps violent crime that we can imagine. If you think about the way that kind of bail laws have been um, sort of strengthened in Victoria, for instance, after some high profile incidents and, and crimes committed by people who were out on bail. But it seems from reading your book that there are some almost sort of unintended consequences um, that have come from things like, uh, you know, advances in uh, medical care that's meant that homicides, you know, rates decrease because people can potentially, you know, have their life saved when they make it to a hospital. And, and you mentioned, um, you know, the move away from uh, a cash society as meaning that, um, you know, people might be much less inclined to try and rob a place if there's not cash on the premises. To what extent have these types of, I guess, uh, approaches been used to deliberately try to bring down the crime rate in many instances based on your vantage point, I guess, as someone who keeps a very close eye on the statistics compared to those sort of high-profile um, uh, initiatives that might speak very directly to kind of a, a more visceral type of crime? Well, when politicians, and this is true of left and right, when they're in opposition, they're always screaming for tougher penalties. And then when they get into government, they find that the tougher penalty regime is actually quite expensive because it means more people coming to court, more people going to jail and spending more time there. So what ends up happening is that they put, keep putting out tough press releases while behind the scenes quietly trying to find things that actually work. And that's what happened around 2000. They, the government of the day knew perfectly well around the country that threatening tougher penalties and higher prosecution rates wasn't really going to do anything, although they kept promising it. But behind the scenes, they started looking at ways to stop car theft and ways to stop burglary and came up with some quite innovative strategies. The sad thing is that rather than go to the public and say, look, this is what we did and this is what resulted from it, they just kept banging out the uh, the tougher law and order stuff, which gave the 
impression to the general public that it was the tough law on order penalties that produced the drop in car theft or the drop in burglary, whereas in fact it was these minor, if you like, minor regulatory reforms that just made it harder to steal goods or harder to steal cars or less reward for robbery. And, you know, I wonder what it can tell us um, about what might help to get uh, cases of fraud down, which is which is the area that you detail has risen in the period where a lot of the other crimes that you look at have declined. Like, are, are these the kind of things that are going to deal with that, um, regulatory reform and the like? Probably. Uh, but I guess the first thing governments need to do is alert people to the dangers of, I mean, they do this to some extent, the dangers of, actually giving people your identity. We still see thousands of cases each year where people are ripped off by trying to pay over the internet in ways that are inherently unreliable and unsafe. So I think there's a lot of scope for reducing identity theft just by being more careful about payment arrangements. Uh, Whether they can do something to deal with fraudulent activity on the website by controlling what goes on is something I'm an expert in. But I, I I would have thought there's plenty of scope through regulatory reform to reduce the incidence of fraud on the internet, which is where most of the growth in fraud is coming from. I wonder if, if years down the track when, um, when you know, people such as yourself are, are looking at the statistics from this time, or particularly 2020, where uh, you know, parts of Australia were in lockdown and, and um, I guess I'm imagining certain inc- instances of crime declined as a result of that. Will this, do you think, provide much of a, an interesting kind of data point going forward or, or perhaps you know, mark a point in time where certain types of crime might change course as sort of happened in the early 2000s? Well, there's a couple of things going on as a result of the COVID epidemic. The first is, of course, the social distancing laws and procedures. That's led to a big reduction in crime on top of the big reductions we've already had. The longer-term effect, though, may go the other way. The longer-term effect is the economic hardship. People who are unemployed don't immediately go out and commit crime. Young people who can't get a job don't immediately go out and commit crime. But if it goes on for a year or two and they're unable to find secure employment at all, that's when you would start to worry about the possibility of people turning to other kinds of offending. Now, what other kinds could they do? Well, it's not so easy these days to make money from break and enter, but it's always possible to make money from drug trafficking or drug dealing. Uh, So the big worry is that people perhaps a year or two out might turn to the drug trade as a means of raising cash that they couldn't get when they were unemployed or unable to find a job. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that would be one of my worries. And is that the kind of thing that you'll be looking at or really when you're looking at at the stats, you're just looking at what, you know, the, the, the regular reported charts that you include in your book? Oh, no, I would take all the information I could get. That's what I did in the book. I mean, I think you've got to keep your eye out for anything that might inform you about what's going on in crime. That's my job. That's what I'm interested in. And, I mean, you um, sort of test, as we mentioned at the beginning, a test of number, a number of theories for why the crime rate might have fallen. To what extent um, and why, I guess, do those sorts of theories gain traction, do you think? Because there have been books written about apparent trends that you can show, or theories, I suppose, that can be immediately debunked by paying close attention to the stats as you've done in this book. Well, a lot of these theories were cooked up in the United States. And so it's not so hard to refute them as relevant to Australia. For example, one of the theories doing the rounds in the United States was that 
the laws that allowed people to hold concealed weapons was responsible for the drop in crime. Well, you can't can't have a concealed weapon in Australia. Another theory in the US was that it was the increase in capital punishment. Well, there is no capital punishment uh, in Australia. A third one was that the abortion, the introduction of abortion, well, and the idea here was that unwanted children are more likely to get involved in crime, so if there are fewer unwanted children, there'll be fewer offenders. Well, abortion and the advent of the pill occurred so long ago, they just don't fit the explanation here. If they were the explanation for the drop in crime in Australia, you would have seen the, the drop starting around the early, 19, early to mid-1990s. Well, it didn't start till 2000. So, I mean, the facts just clash with many of the theories that were put forward in the United States, in which people here just automatically assumed had some relevance. So, I, you know, I guess the thing is, it's not enough to have a good theory uh, even if it's exciting and upsets a lot of people, you've really got to sit down and think, well, how does the evidence stack up against this theory? You know, I what I um, I mean, you don't go into this um, in the book, but I, I mean, I wondered, we, we, we're hearing that a lot of young people spend a lot more time at home, for instance, because there's just so many entertainment opportunities and people are socialising differently and things like that. Are these the kind of theories like me that put them out there? I have absolutely no idea if that does anything um, for or against crime. Um, but, you know, this is the sort of assumption that we make as we see lifestyles change and then numbers in front of us and go, oh, I wonder if that's what um, affects crime rates. Is this kind of where some of these theories come from? Well, actually, I think your, your theory is good. And oh, it's a good one. Oh, thanks for that. <laughs> Run with it. Write a book about it. <laughs> Can you well, test that one you know, out? <laughs> if you want to think back, you remember that the lounge rooms of people in the 1990s were full of expensive, bulky uh, stereo equipment and, you know, games that were played on the television and all this other stuff. These days, it's all in your back pocket in your mobile phone. People walk around with earphones in their ears. They're not sitting at home in front of a stereo system. They're playing games on their uh, la- on their mobile phone. I mean, many of the functions that were performed by large, stealable items are now performed by your mobile phone. Well, you know, to get that, you have to rob somebody. You have to threaten them with violence. And even if you do get it, you can block their access. So I think your theory is good, uh, and it certainly shows up in the stolen goods market. When you look at what's being stolen, they're just not stealing that stuff anymore because you can't sell it. Try selling a big, bulky Nakamichi, uh, you know, amplifier. There just aren't enough people around willing to buy it. Nah, too big. Too big, too clumsy. That's not what people want. Yep. You know, they want a Bose earphones rather than one of those. So Bose or what? Yeah, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Don, um, and I'm glad that your fascination for um, crime stats has allowed you to turn it into what is actually incredibly readable book. Um, it's called The Vanishing Criminal, Causes of Decline in Australia's Crime Rate. Um, it's it's a really well-told told story, and, um, yeah, and congratulations to you and also your co-author, Sarah Rahman, for it, and thanks for um, spending some time with us on uh, um, talking about it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And um, you can grab this book if you're interested um, via Melbourne University Press. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot.
It is wonderful to have Sally Rippon back in the house, well, at least on the phone, um, author and illustrator of all sorts of books for children, including Billy B. Brown and Hey Jack and the Polly and Buster series. Sally's been a regular voice on this program for many years, and it's been a little while since we've spoken to her. She's had her head down and tail up producing a whole range of new books for early readers. Uh, the first four come out, I think, this Wednesday, um, and it's four books of 10 in the series. It's called The School of Monsters, and um, Sally, of course, you're going to be writing about monsters. <laughs> That's right. I have um, actually grown to love monsters quite a bit ever, ever since um, I wrote Polly and Buster. But first of all, I have to say hi, Carly and Dylan. Gosh, I miss you and I miss being on Triple R. So thank you so much for having me on today. Absolute pleasure. It, um, it all feels like a big warm hug having, having you back on the show after after so long. <laughs> but um, but I, remember, I remember chatting to you last year sort of as, you know, lockdown and sort of the early stages of lockdown. And um, you were talking about the that challenge, I suppose, to be productive in a time that was pretty tough for um for us all really for a whole bunch of reasons but how was it for you i mean you've obviously got this whole book series coming out so um so you must have kept pretty busy yeah it was actually um a a bit of a godsend i have to say because you're right in that first lockdown like a lot of people i kind of just went into this panic which meant that there was no creativity happening whatsoever but i had come up with this series idea fortunately beforehand and so then a lot of the um, time taken up during the second lockdown was just working with the publisher and the illustrator and putting them together which ended up being the loveliest experience because we're all on my big screen on zoom my publisher myself and the illustrator he was uh, changing some of the illustrations as we could watch it. So it really was a lovely thing to be working on. And they're so fun. And so it was just like these little highlights and, and otherwise could have been quite a gloomy time. Yeah, and I, I mean, what about others in the, the um, children's book world? I mean, you've been bringing us um, authors and illustrators and people in publishing houses and, and bookstore owners and um, people for years on, on this show. And we've heard, you know, more behind-the-scenes stories than I think, you know, you could almost hear anywhere on the airwaves in Australia. And, I mean, have you been talking to people through the pandemic, Sally? And, and I mean, what's the sort of general feeling around children's books? Was last year, you know, a highlight for some with when, when people really did hit, you know, the online purchasing and, and bought books for themselves and for their children and the like? Yeah, I think initially in the beginning, obviously, everybody was very nervous because so much of children's bookselling relies on going into a bookstore and speaking with a specialist bookseller and they can recommend things that your kids will like. So, of course, everybody was a little bit panicked and, of course, everybody also had to cancel all their launches and their tours. But it was extraordinary how the children's book community rallied and there were a lot of independent booksellers. You know, I can think of um, the little book room close to me and also readings kids that were doing so many fantastic online activities and Adrian Beck and I ran an online, uh, I think it was just in the second lockdown actually, what we call as the Kids Look Club, which is like a, a little video where we're interviewing other people online. So we just kept in touch with everybody and anytime somebody's book was coming out, we'd sing out the praises of it. So really it ended up being this lovely way of connecting and in some ways, we're closer than ever, I think, having been through something like that. But, yeah, it was, it was a challenging time. But I think kids' books are actually doing pretty well because a lot of people are um, homeschooling, as we all know, and just working with kids at home. So looking for good books and looking for good ideas to get their kids engaged with reading and learning 
And so, um, you know, I don't think it's, it's been quite as dire as we thought it would be. And there's certainly a lot of love and support for our local lo- local bookstores and the industry. And so tell us about School of Monsters. It's a book series um, kind of aimed to bridge that sort of gap from, um, you know, kids moving from picture books to early readers. Um, how did you approach writing a book series that kind of is, is directed at, at that age group? Yeah, that's exactly right, Dylan. So the picture book is to be read aloud. So it's a beautiful experience for a child sitting with an adult and they will read the story and the child will read the pictures in a sense. And so it's almost, I guess, the closest thing to it, as I've mentioned a few times on the show. It's almost like watching a film because you have the the storytelling happening, somebody's providing that for you and you're looking at the visuals and engaging with that yourself. And then there's quite a big gap that goes from having books read to you to be able to read independently. And obviously a lot... Um, of parents worry that that's something that's, that has to happen from them but children have to be taught how to read in school and teachers are the best people to do that but there's lots of things that parents can do to actually get their kids started on that reading journey at home and so one of those things is is reading quite simple books, books with rhyme books with rhythm, things like that so the kids can start to see how language can be playful, they can recognise text um, even really simple things like following along the line so the kids know that the text goes from left to right so all of those things I've tried to incorporate in this series because I see this as being in that little gap between the read along and read alone. And so before kids are able to read Billy B. Brown, there's still a little bit of a gap there. And so this is a series that's even simpler. It's one you'd start by reading with your kids and then the last word on every line, they can read out for themselves because they're very, very simple words and eventually they can work up to reading it by themselves on their own. It's the most profound thing to be part of seeing a child go through that journey. And I remember, I mean, my kids are older now, but when they were when they were little, and 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 you could see they were starting to get interested in in the word and which one said that, and and um, making those connections. It's it's exciting to see that happen. I reckon, and you know, I got addicted to reading with kids. You know, outside. Um, the prep classrooms and things like that um, because I just love to see that happen again and again with with children but I mean how much do you need to know Sally as an author to be able to um, provide that experience for children to do as you say read along and then be able to read alone well I think my situation is a little bit unusual in that my youngest son is dyslexic so he found in the way that my older two boys were just able to pick up reading by osmosis he wasn't able to do that and so I've done a lot of research into how it is that we do learn to read and particularly if you do have a child that is still plateauing at um, or struggling in grade two there may be a sign that, that they will need extra support because or even dyslexic children can learn to read if they're really taught in a very systematic way but a lot of um, children can fall through the gaps because they can look like they're reading because they're guessing or they've just uh, recognised enough words and then they get to more challenging books and you can see that they can't move on any further and that's when you can think, okay, well, this kid really needs a lot of extra support. But certainly at home, I think it's just little things like starting to um, talk about language and pointing out words and letters and everywhere around you so that language, they start to translate the sounds into words and... um, Starting with really, really simple words. So I've used the most simple words I can, you know, ones they can spell out for themselves, like mm, at, mat, 
all those kind of things. So these are just things I've learned along the way in researching, you know, how my kids have learned to read and also, you know, the struggles that my youngest son has had in um, not being able to do that himself and talking to lots of, lots of educators and talking to lots of people who um, work in the field of dyslexia. So I've just put all of these ideas together, but essentially the author's uh, challenges to make something really creative and really fun. So it's not my role to teach kids to read, but my role is to give them something that's fun and gives them the incentive to want to read. So great stories, great characters. Maybe they see themselves in the characters as well. So I think sometimes we can get mixed up between um, what the role of the parent and the teacher is, but very much the author's role is to engage kids with reading, making them want to pick up a book and read it. And we've talked a lot um, with you um, in, in past years about the relationship between authors and illustrators. And as, as mentioned at the top, you haven't done the um, the artwork for this book series. It's Chris Kennett um, who has. What's it like when you see pictures put to your words? I mean, obviously, you know, kids engage with both the visual and, and the kind of story when they're reading these types of books. But as someone who's created it, how do you kind of respond when you see some of the, some of the drafts coming in and, and bringing the sort of um, the, the story to life, I suppose, on the page? It is the most magical journey. It is the, probably <laughs> one of the best parts about doing what I do is to work with people as talented as Chris. So I had in my mind that I wanted something that was kind of a little bit like Dr. Seuss meets Sesame Street, a little bit of a Richard Scarry kind of feel. And so I wanted the characters to be really appealing to kids that have grown up on screen so that they can make that you know, leap across from watching something to wanting to pick up a book and reading it as well. And Chris's background is in animation. So he's brought a lovely style that's really bright, it's really fun, but it almost is reminiscent of something like Monsters, Inc. or Hotel Mm. Transylvania in that all the characters are kind of kooky. But the great thing also about creating a school of monsters rather than kids is that you don't need to portray their cultural backgrounds or their age or anything like that. So we're hoping that all kids can identify with at least some of the characters because they all experience the same things that kids do when they arrive at school, you know, potentially um, breaking rules and getting into trouble for that or making new friends, all those really simple everyday things that happen in a fantastical world setting. Yeah, and they're really gorgeous characters and I I love it that, you know, on the cover it says art by Chris Kennett, which is true. They, (laughs) They are art pieces, aren't they, what he's created? I love them. I just think between him and the designer who has just created this gorgeous kind of eye-popping colours, um, yeah, that, to me they just look so appealing. They look like definitely something I would have um, wanted to read when I was a kid. And, uh, I mean, another thing we've, we've chatted about a lot is how uh, writing for kids is um, is quite complex and, and um, you know, there might be kind of an assumption out there that writing a short picture book might be very easy, but it's absolutely not to sort of distill everything into um, words that can be easily understood and in a way that has a kind of rhythm to it as well. When you were sort of drafting out these stories, how did you know when you'd landed on kind of a, a really great concept? Because, I mean, they've got titles like... Pete's Big Feet, Harry Sam Loves Bread and Jam, Mary Has the Best Pet. How do you know when you're like, yeah, that's going to work, that's going to provide a really sort of interesting and engaging story for this series? <laughs> that's a great question. This one I really set myself the challenge and a whole lot of limitations. So um, with a picture book text, you can use quite uh, complex language and imagery because that's a book that's going to be shared with a child. But these are books that eventually a child is going to run off with on, on their own. So the challenge I set myself was to find the absolute simplest vocabulary. And so I would look up, you know, the first words that kids would be taught at school, so consonant, vowel, consonant words like mat, mat, that kind of thing. Mm. And I set myself the challenge of saying, can I write whole stories with the simplest language possible? 
plus make them rhyming because I think the fun thing about rhyming is that they're great to read aloud. They're almost like um, the old-fashioned lullabies that we used to sing to our kids or rhyming text almost replaces that. But I also want them to use these really, really simple words at the end of each word. So, you know, Deb and Dot and the mix-up plot. And so all these really simple sounding words right at the end that kids can point out for themselves. And then there's a couple of pages at the back where they can practice the words and they can practice the drawings and there's some hints there for parents to help kids um, with their reading journey. So it was really, I guess, the concept was more complex than the actual writing of it and I wanted to create characters funny and um, each of the characters appears in each other's stories. So I think it was it was almost like constructing the world was the most mm. complex part, but using the simplest vocabulary possible. So I had to write all the 10 stories in one go, so they, they could all overlap and all the, the characters would appear in each other's stories. But it's just been a joy to watch Chris bring them to life because that's, um, that's all my hard work is out of the way now. Now it's all up to him to bring them alive, and they're just amazing. I love them. Sally Rippin's with us, and we're talking about her new books um, in the School of Mon- Monsters series. The first four are coming out this week, uh, followed by the next six. When, Sally? Yeah, so uh, they first four come out on Wednesday, and then uh, there's going to be ten altogether over the next two years. So there'll be another couple later on this year, and then some more next year as well. And, and we've got all these activities planned um, yeah. on the website, which will be launched later this week as well. So it'll be downloadable packs for parents who want to help their kids with activities and that kind of thing. So look out for that. Um, probably from maybe towards the end of the week they'll be all ready to go. And I have to ask, Sims, that you um, mentioned that uh, you were really thinking about kids um, going from screen to book, which is just such a fascinating idea, um, I reckon, that you're thinking that way because I I guess a lot of kids have spent a lot of time on on screens even, you know, before that reading age. But can you imagine it going book back to screen in the sense of (laughs) animating it? (laughs) That would be an absolute dream, obviously. And, uh, you know, in the end, for me, once I've created the story and the characters where they branch out from there, it's it's just always a complete bonus. But obviously with Chris's background as an animator, I'd love to see them come alive in that way. But really these are all about getting kids reading. And I think particularly for all our preps last year that struggled through lockdown, a lot of parents particularly are feeling overwhelmed and a little bit like their kids have missed out on some quite important, not just learning skills, but socialisation skills as well. So... We're really hoping that everything we can bring out with these books and also with the the support packs that we're creating online, that it will just give parents the confidence to just help their kids on their reading journey at home and potentially, you know, um, identify if there are some of those gaps happening sooner rather than later so they can get the support if they need it. Well, their books are out through Hardy Grant and um, all the best, Sally, and good luck with the launches this week and hopefully you can do some in person. Wouldn't that be amazing? It would be so lovely to meet all those little monsters in real life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And we'll talk to you again soon, no doubt. Thanks heaps. It's great to speak with you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on again. Ciao. Uh, Sally Rippin there. School of Monsters is what we've been talking about and the mechanics of reading and really just entertaining kids and um, it's all those things that she said around supporting people through that reading journey. The art is by Chris Kennett. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.